of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, through to Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, which is on 1006 of the, uh, of the Bibles in the seats in front of you. So starting at Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he'd cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, If you've been with us through this um, series so far, then I wonder what what, what your favourite bit of Matthew's Gospel is. Uh, We've worked our way all the way through Matthew's Gospel. 
What would be, be your favourite book? I guess for many of us, it might be the Beatitudes. Um, uh, they're great, great verses there, aren't they? Right at the beginning of, uh, of the Gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who expect nothing, for they shall never be disappointed. Okay, I made the last one up. Uh, That wasn't Jesus. Uh, That was Alexander Pope. Blessed are they who expect nothing, for they shall never be disappointed. It's a kind of maxim that that a lot of people live with. Disappointment is a pretty universal phenomenon, isn't it? Uh, I mean, what what would we be disappointed about today? We will be disappointed if it starts raining on our baptism. That would be sad, because we put it outside. Uh, The only person who's not going to worry about that over much is Angus, because he will be wet anyway. Uh, But for the rest of us, it'll be a bit of a disappointment. Uh, What else are you disappointed about? Are you disappointed with the way that life has turned out? Maybe you had always hoped to be married and you're not married. Disappointing. Maybe you always hoped to have children you haven't been able to have children. Disappointing. Maybe you did get married and it is that marriage that is a disappointment. Maybe you had children and it is parenting that has turned out to be a disappointment. Wasn't at all like you thought it was going to be. We just face, in all sorts of ways, don't we, disappointment in life where we expect for something and it just turns out not to be the way that we expected it to be. Uh, All of us will relate to different things. And disappointment starts early, doesn't it? Um, This is Beth, my wife, thinks I'm a bit odd. Um, for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons she thinks I'm a bit odd is that I've got some quite early memories. Um, And one of those is, I I guess it would have either been my sixth or possibly my seventh birthday. And back in those days, um, Batman was a big thing. Not not the Batman movies, just the Batman comics. And all my friends were getting these most excellent Batman outfits. Graham can remember those, can't you, Graham? No. Okay, you get these excellent Batman outfits. And what I really, really wanted for my birthday was, was a Batman outfit. And I felt sure that my parents, you know, I'd, I'd given them plenty of hints. They must know. they get me this Batman outfit. And the birthday came, and I can, I can like it was yesterday, I can remember vividly pulling off the, the, the wrapping. And it was, it was a Batman outfit. But as my eyes fell on it, it was not the sort of Batman outfit my friends had. They had these whopping great Batman belts. And there was just this sort of tiddly little strip. They had these fantastic Batman cowls, you know, the sort of, is it a cow? Is that the right word? The sort of the big masks. And there in my Batman kit was a little Robin sort of, you know, bandit sort of little strip thing. And I was crushed. Yeah, it, was, uh, it, it was just utterly sort of, I just felt completely defeated and undone. I had so badly wanted it. And there it was before me, and it was just not. Um, and I remember, I remember running out into the garden and going and, and hiding by the coal bunker. Yes, I'm old enough to have a coal bunker. Actually, we used to have coal in it as well. I'm that old. Um, 
And, uh, and I just, I sat there by the coal bunker and I wept because I was just so gutted. I'd wanted this so, so badly. And now I had it and it was just a profound and utter disappointment. How do you think it was next year when the birthday comes round? You, you kind of learnt then, haven't you? You begin to put the buffers up. Don't, don't, don't expect too much. I don't want to hurt like I did last year. I don't, I don't want to be disappointed like that again. Isn't that the way that we go? From early on in life, you begin to discover that life disappoints. And bit by bit, we begin to build the shields around us that insulate us against disappointment down the line. Don't expect too much, and then you won't be disappointed. See, I mean, and there's something slightly tragic about that, isn't there? That as life goes on, we gradually become, I don't know, more and more defended uh, against the possibility of disappointment, expecting less and less. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, the Christian writer, he reckons that there are a couple of ways of dealing with the experience of disappointment. The first of those he calls the fool's way. And he says, faced with disappointment, the fool always blames not having got the right things yet. He says, the the, the problem is that I've not just yet found the right thing out there. The reason that I'm not happy in my marriage is because I've not found the right marriage partner yet. Uh, The reason that holidays keep disappointing me is I've just not found, you know, I've not spent enough money on the most excellent holiday destination in the world and I just need to find it. And they say, the fool, therefore, keeps casting around, keeps searching for the thing that will finally satisfy them. And there's something sort of profoundly immature about that. You know, just running around from thing to thing, uh, blaming stuff out there, always searching for something more. Uh, He contrasts that with, um, what does he call it? He calls it the the disillusioned but sensible man or woman. The disillusioned but sensible man who has recognised that they keep getting disappointed in life and have thought, well, the thing to do is just to accept that that's the way things are. Life is disappointing. And, um, and to, to sort of, as it were, look down his nose at, at, at the, sort of the, the bright young things who are still sort of expecting wonderful things out of life and say, oh, when you're my age, you all know that things don't turn out for the best um, and that life is full of crushing disappointments in your life. You know? uh, and sort of, a, sort of a superiority that's born out of uh, disappointment. Um, and C.S. Lewis sort of describes that as it's a sort of hardness that creeps into you. Um, almost a sort of cynicism with life that says, can't expect too much from life because life does just disappoint. Well, what would... God have to say to us about the issue of disappointment uh, that all of us feel. All of us have this experience 
Uh, all of us know what it is to be disappointed. All of us, I guess, have a sense that, to some measure or other, we have begun to insulate ourselves against being disappointed too many times. Well, what would uh, the Bible have to say to us? Well, the passage that we've just had read, that Mark just read for us from the end of chapter 27, the beginning of chapter 28, describes to us the resurrection. Well, okay, so God puts before us a hope of resurrection, a new life, a new creation. But we mustn't move too quickly to that. Um, Just take a look at uh, chapter 28, would you? I'm going to concentrate on verses 1 to 10 of chapter 28. Um, And I'd love you... Let me just take a look at it now. Let me give you a moment or two. Um, could you scan through that section? Uh, it's on page, what is it, page 1006-1007. Just scan through those first verses of chapter 28, first ten verses. What is the dominant idea? What is the dominant theme? Even what's the repeated words that you see most there? Just give you a few minutes. Look, look through that section. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you in a minute. Uh, dominant theme, dominant idea. What, what, what would you pick out? Fear. Thank you. Yeah. Um, others see that? There's a repeated word several times, isn't it? Fear, don't be afraid, terrified. Comes up again and again through the section. Fear, terror. Now, I take it that to some extent, um, I mean, dead people rising must be a little bit frightening. I mean, there must be that sort of very genuine sort of encounter with something kind of, utterly out of normal experience. I I suppose that must be there. But what I want to explore with you for a few minutes this morning is, is there a degree to which there is also another fear bubbling around? The, The fear of believing this. The fear that would come if you really accepted that what seems to have taken place has taken place. If you really let yourself embrace the possibility of that Jesus has risen again, that there is new life. And that is just a little bit too frightening. Just, just run with that idea with me for a moment as we, as we look at it, uh, follow it through. Uh, I'm going to take it section by section and um, look first at verses 1 to 4. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The thing that I find striking here is that in this business of resurrection, evidence is clearly not enough. Because here are the guards, the first witnesses, according to the Bible, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But 
what's the impact upon them? I mean, there's plenty of evidence there, isn't there? And in fact, Matthew has constructed his account almost anticipating the sorts of arguments that would be used to deny the idea of the resurrection. So some people say, don't they, that um, Jesus swooned. He wasn't really dead on the cross, put him in the tomb, nice and cool, felt a bit better, got up, um, and convinced everyone that he was risen from the dead. But Matthew has already told us that there is a mighty great stone, back there in verse 60, huge stone that has been rolled uh, into the, uh, probably into a trench in front of the cave uh, that this tomb had been cut out of. Uh, that the women, when they come later on in one of the other accounts, just think, oh, we, there, no way we can, the three of us can't possibly move that. How would we ever move it? You know, Jesus swooning, then pushing away this rock, and then convincing it. I mean, it's just madness, isn't it? But other people would say it was the wrong tomb. You know, the reason that the tomb was empty is because they went to the wrong one. Uh, it's not very, not very likely, is it, really? I mean, verse 61 uh, tells us that the women were sat there watching as, the body was, as Jesus' body was put into the tomb. That's a madness to suggest that. Um, still others, and perhaps most commonly, would say, well, the disciples wanted Jesus to rise again. Then wasn't it in their interest to steal the body? Now, of course, the reason that that is a pretty hard argument to run with is precisely because of the fact that the Pharisees have persuaded the Romans to put a guard of soldiers, a little company of soldiers, on guard in front of the tomb. There's a slight irony there, isn't there? That in their desperate attempts to try and make sure that nobody nobody could sort of feign a resurrection, they actually end up producing additional evidence that there was a resurrection. Because it's very hard to imagine there could possibly be a theft of the body, given that it was guarded. Now, all of the alternative explanations just feel very thin. Um, Sir Edward Clarke was a British High Court judge, conducted a thorough analysis of the legal evidence for the resurrection and declared, to me the evidence is conclusive. And he adds, over and over again in the High Court, I've secured a verdict on evidence not nearly as compelling as this. Now, if you want to look at the evidence, the evidence is very compelling. But the guards aren't compelled, are they? In fact, Matthew weaves into his account um, almost a sort of comic moment. Because here are these strapping guards, muscular, full of life, I take it, uh, who are on guard, guarding a corpse. Uh, Then what happens? The corpse comes to life and the lively guards become like dead men. The complete reversal that Matthew weaves into his account to try and highlight what's going on here. So the the simple existence of evidence doesn't persuade these guards. That's not enough. Something more is needed. Uh, So move on to the next section. Um, Verse 4, for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, and there's there's a very strong contrast there, the guards have become like dead men, but the angel says to the women, don't you be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. 
Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. There's a funny, it's a funny idea, that, isn't it? Do you find that odd? They, they departed from the tomb with fear and great joy. Those are not emotions that you would immediately put together, are they? Fear and great joy. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't obviously weave those two side by side. You think, well, you know, if you are fearful, then you're not joyful. If you're joyful, you're not fearful, are you? Um, I heard somebody giving, um, or I heard about somebody who was giving a talk on this, uh, on this passage and was talking about that idea of fear and great joy. And he said, actually, they are consistent. You can have both of those at the same time. And in the question time at the end, a young man put his hand up and said, I would just like to agree with you that it is possible to have fear and great joy simultaneously. I know this because they exist simultaneously in me at this moment. I feel great fear and great joy because I've just got married. Which is about right, isn't it? Yeah, very joyful to get married, pretty terrifying. How will I be as a husband? How will she be as a wife? What will marriage be like? Pretty frightened of that. Don't know how it's going to be. Not sure how it's going to work out. It's another of those moments, isn't it? Dare I risk expecting something wonderful here? Or would I best just pull back my anticipation? lest I'm disappointed. I think that's what's going on here. I think the reason that the women are experiencing fear and great joy is because of the tussle. Dare they believe this? Dare they, dare they let themselves believe that Jesus really is risen from the dead? That a new creation really has broken in? That all of the promises that a few hours ago they thought were undone are actually going to be realised. Could they dare believe it? If you're a Christian this morning, do you dare believe it? I mean, I know, I know you believe it, but do you believe it? I mean, I, mean, I know that you know that Jesus rose from the dead and, and you believe it, but do you believe it? Do you know what I mean? I mean, really? Does it, does it get you in a way that your life is transformed by it? Does it get you at the level that it would make life completely different? Because you believe that there is an eternity. You believe that that's going to be your eternity through faith in Christ and all that he's done for you. And is your life made different as a result? Because you're putting aside fear and you're believing. Because it would be life transforming, wouldn't it, if you were really, really sure of that. But I wonder whether we dare let ourselves believe. It, it, it's sort of like the way that we are with our children, if you've got children, or you've seen uh, parents with kids. And there are those slightly tragic phrases where we find ourselves saying to our children, now don't get too excited. Oh, 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 oh don't get your hopes up. I'd hate to see you disappointed. 
I mean, th- there is something sort of, there is something awful about that, isn't there? You, you've got this sort of, you've got this young child, just a bubble of, you know, just almost, they're, they're fit to burst with excitement about something. And along comes some grumpy old adult who says, don't get too excited. I mean, there is, but we do it, don't we? It's exactly what we do. You know, I'm the wise, experienced, older person who knows that things often go wrong. Things aren't as good as you expect them to be. So let me just pour some cold water on your effervescent enthusiasm and turn you into a cynic like me. I mean, it's awful when you... Oh, I'm overdoing that, aren't I? Uh, I mean, it's awful when you think about it, isn't it? But, it? but it is what we find ourselves doing. But is it what we end up doing with the resurrection? As Christian believers... Oh, hang on. Don't, don't believe it too much. You see... Actually, move on to the final section, uh, and we'll pick it up a bit further there. Look, look again at verse 8. So the women departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see him. There they will see me. There are lots of strange, strange moments in that. Um, notice that behold, behold, Jesus met them. It, it, it's a sort of strong word that just sort of says, look, look at that. Uh, he's used, Matthew's just used a little bit before, isn't he? At the beginning of the chapter. Uh, behold, there was an earthquake. Uh, it's there again, uh, chapter 27, over the next column across, verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple, torn in two. It's just one of those sort of, it's one of those moments where, as it were, I don't know, God somehow rips his way into our world with a sort of behold moment. Um, Philip Yancey uh, talks about these moments like tremors uh, through the fabric of the cosmos as God transforms things. That's what these events are, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Things utterly transformed. The breaking in of new creation, resurrection life, and all that it promises for those who will trust in Jesus. Uh, And the women, well, now it's a personal encounter, isn't it? They've seen the evidence, now they encounter the man. And see what they do? It's a lovely combination, isn't it? That They take hold of his feet, because he's real flesh and blood, you can take hold of his feet. He really is a risen man. But they take hold of his feet and they worship him. Because he's not just a risen man, he is the Lord God, worthy of their worship. It's a wonderful combination uh, of what they do. And Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. It's not too good to be true. It is real. Would you believe it? Would you believe me? Would you believe this resurrection, this eternity, this new heavens and new earth that I have been teaching you about? Would you believe it? 
Actually, I misled you earlier on. Um, C.S. Lewis um, does give two ways that I mentioned of dealing with disappointment, but he then adds a third. So he says that the, the one way of dealing with disappointment is, is just to keep desperately searching for, for the, the thing out there, blaming it on stuff. And I just need to get the right stuff and then I won't be disappointed anymore. And he says the second way is to be that disillusioned, sensible man. Um, just be realistic that life is always a little bit disappointing. But then he adds a third, which he describes the, uh, the Christian believer's way. Uh, which he says is, well, he kind of likes it like this. He says, you know how the things that we desire are matched by a reality. You feel thirsty, there, there is stuff to drink. You feel hungry, there is food. You feel sexual desire, there is sexuality. You know, our desires are matched by a reality out there. And he says, so what about the fact that we feel dissatisfied with this world? What about the fact that we feel disillusioned with this world? Could it not be that that is matched by the fact that we were made for another world? That we were made for eternity? And that whilst in this broken world, it's right and proper that we feel disillusioned and disappointed? Because this broken world is not the world that we were made for. That desire, that, that desire for something better, that dissatisfaction with what we've got actually points us to the reality that we were made for. Of course, the, the problem is, are we brave enough to believe in it? Will we overcome our fear and believe. Because how would it be if, as it were, that the, a real certain sure hope in that future reality broke into your life and mine? What would that look like? How would it transform the way that I dealt with the disappointments? Because there still would be disappointments, wouldn't there, in this broken world? That would still be what would happen to us. But you'd deal with them in a different way, wouldn't you? I was trying to think, what would I liken it to? And it would almost be as if, whilst living in, with my body in this broken, disappointing, disillusioning world, I had stability. Why? Because my feet are standing on that hope of eternity. That gives me the platform to engage with this world. As it were, to rip off all the barriers that I've put up between me and this world that are trying to keep me safe. Because I don't need to be safe anymore because I am safe because I'm stood on the promise of eternity. And if I ripped off those barriers, what would it be like? Actually, I think we would feel more. I think we would feel sadder and we would feel happier. I think pain would hurt more. Because we would have engaged more with our world. But joy would be more joyful because we would engage more in our world. I think that's what it would be like. I think actually it would be because we would be more alive. We would not have fenced ourselves round, insulated ourselves from the world. We would let ourselves engage with relationships, let ourselves engage with projects and with dreams and with possibilities, knowing that they might let us bound, but knowing that that cannot undo us because we're stood on the promise of eternity. I think that's what it would be like. 
but I think we're afraid. And I think that's why over and over again in this resurrection account comes the instruction, don't be afraid. Believe this. Would you believe this? You're a Christian this morning, do you believe this? Would you let the truth of it invade your life in a way that your life would be changed by it? Do you see that that's the direction that Jesus calls us all to move? We'll never arrive, but we've got to move that way. What would Jesus say to us this morning? I think he would say to us, in the face of the disappointments of your life, in the face of the disappointments that are still to come, would you trust me? Would you not be afraid and believe that there is a new heavens and a new earth? That there is an eternity? And that by grace, all of a gift, I give it to you? And would you let that truth transform your life in the here and now? It is as if he he sort of paints two options before us. One option is the option that is driven by fear. That means that I play safe. That means that I hold on to my life. I protect myself. I'm cautious. I don't risk too much. I save my life. And what does Jesus say? Save your life and you lose it. And the alternative option is that I trust him. And that because of the promise of eternity, I take risks for him. I put myself in places where I could get hurt, where I could get let down, but I live out of a confidence that nothing can snatch eternity from me because it's his gift to me. It strikes me that in many ways what we're about to witness downstairs with Angus's baptism is those two choices. So the easy choice would be Angus to say, I don't want to look a fool in a pool outside, getting wet. You know, let me just be cautious here. You know, I don't, I don't, don't want people to think I'm a bit, bit too keen. You know, much easier to be cool and reserved and sort of stand back from this. Or the alternative of saying, actually, this is my hope. I give myself to this completely. I die to my old life out of a conviction that there is a new life to rise up to that Christ gives me. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Alexander Pope said, Blessed are they who expect nothing, for they shall never be disappointed. Sam Gamgee, as it happens, at the end of The Lord of the Rings, said, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Would you dare to believe? Uh, let, me, um, let me lead us in a prayer. Actually, no, let me leave you space to pray. Um, let me leave you some silence. Uh, It may be that as we have looked and thought about this account together, you are struck by ways in which fear is standing in the way of faith. Uh, Maybe there are specific issues that you want to let go of, Um, specific areas of fear that are holding you back.
uh, maybe more general, I don't know. Let me, let me leave you a moment, um, if you would, to, to bring that before the Lord.